Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Very pleased to welcome right here on Bloomberg Surveillance on the Westminster Green, Nikki Morgan, the chair of the Treasury Select Committee and a conservative member of parliament. And also with us to talk markets and many other things, Rupert Harrison, BlackRock Multi-Asset Strategies Portfolio Manager and also former chief of staff to Chancellor George Osborne. So thank you both for joining us. Nikki Morgan, let me start off with you. How does the prime minister get this through parliament? Well, I think that she's got obviously a very busy two and a half weeks uh, to do that. We expect the vote to be uh, on the 12th of December. And I think what she's doing, the strategy, is to uh, appeal to our constituents, actually, uh, to appeal to members of the public. Uh, my inbox is absolutely full of uh, constituents rightly having their say about this very important deal uh, and people from around the rest of the country, but I'm going to concentrate on my uh, constituents. Um, at the moment, the, the views are obviously sort of divided into three. There are those who uh, want a second vote. There are those who are happy to leave with no deal, but there's actually a vast amount in the middle who are saying, you know what, we've had two years of this, we need Brexit to be settled, no deal's ever going to be perfect, please will you just say, say yes and get on. And people are really interested. I mean, I thought over the weekend, back in my constituency, it came up absolutely everywhere. Uh, any kind of event I was at, people who are not considered to be political, they were really, really keen to discuss it and to get my views. And I was, it's really important that I hear from them. But looking at the numbers, how difficult is it, if you look at parliamentary arithmetic, for her to get it through Parliament? And what happens if she doesn't? Is there a second referendum attached to it? Well, I think, look, of course it's going to be challenging. Uh, there are a number of my colleagues in the Conservative Party, as well as opposition MPs, who said they will not vote for the deal. Um, two and a half weeks is a very long time in politics. As I think as we've seen in Brexit, things change by by the hour. So I don't think we should say this is not going to get through at the moment, but undoubtedly it's going to be challenging. But the difficulty speculating is, you know, what happens if it doesn't get through? Uh, Parliament, there is no majority in Parliament for a no-deal Brexit. So Parliament, MPs will have to work out what are we going to do in order to make sure that doesn't unfold. I also don't think there's a majority for a second vote. Um, it would take a long time to put that in place. What question would be asked? What do we do if the result is no different or only marginally different from 2016? It just creates longer-term uncertainty. So I think it's right in a way, the PM's doing the right thing, which is concentrating day by day on making the case for, for her deal. Rupert, what happens the day after Parliament votes this down? Uh, that is a very good question. I mean, I think we can't absolutely rule out the possibility that Theresa May will manage to get the votes for this deal. You've got to remember, over the last two years, the amount of commentary we've heard saying a deal would be impossible, uh, you know, neither side would be able to make the compromises necessary. So we have this crucial fact now that there is a deal on the table. Your question is the right question, though, because I do think the probability, balance of probabilities, favour the deal failing. I think what happens next depends crucially now on the margin of that failure. I think if, if the deal is lost by just 10 to 20 votes, then I think the game is still on. Uh, I think there's a possibility, despite the fact that EU leaders say there isn't, of small mm. tweaks, particularly to the future relationship document, maybe to parts of the withdrawal uh, agreement. And maybe that, combined with some market yeah. and business pressure, might get it over the line. I think if the margin is much bigger... Then we are into Plan Bs, and I think the interesting questions then are, uh, is Theresa May able to stay around to, to lead that Plan B, and what does that Plan B look right. like? I think it is something much more like an EEA, EFTA-type arrangement, trying to win over some Labour votes. Nikki Morgan, what I find here from a distance, and I'm speaking as a distinct amateur on all things uh, Brexit, is the idea that we're <laughs> going to somehow amend or renegotiate or that. 
I don't hear that from Brussels. Is there any wiggle room here for members of parliament? Well, I think you're certainly right. That's not the message we heard loud and clear from Brussels over the weekend. Um, I think that there is, certainly in Parliament, uh, there is potentially an appetite for some uh, wiggle room. Of course, there are some people who want the fundamentals of the withdrawal agreement, which basically relates to the backstop relating to the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to be renegotiated. I don't think that's up for uh, negotiation, renegotiation. But I do think that potentially, as Rupert has said, some kind of further move towards an uh, access to the EEA, greater access via EFTA, the so-called Norway model. Um, and of course, we have already agreed uh, a UK-wide customs arrangement for a period of time is a possibility. Um, the EU at the moment obviously giving nothing away about whether they would entertain that. Uh, but, um, you know, I think uh, Rupert, when he was advising in the Treasury and I was uh, EU Budget Minister, we all know that no EU negotiation is ever quite done until the 11th hour. And we don't reach that 11th hour until the 29th of March next year. Although I think we all hope for our sanity and for certainty for businesses and others that we achieve a resolution to this a long time before March next year. And, and Nicky Morgan, if this uh, Theresa May deal fails in Parliament, would you back a second referendum? No, I'm not keen on the second referendum. I really feel very strongly about this, that actually I think a first referendum, uh, which you know I supported and I, I understood that it was something people wanted to have a say on, uh, but I think referendums cut across our, our representative democracy that we have. We have 650 MPs elected in 2017 to sort this out. And actually, if we can't do that, then I think there is something much greater that is in trouble in our parliamentary representative democracy. Uh, so for a number of practical reasons, but also a big constitutional reason, I think a second vote would be a very bad idea. Even if you could argue that actually we're better off, you know, we were better off in the EU than with the current deal. Well, look, I, I argued that case. Um, yeah. Obviously, we didn't know about this, this deal on the table now. But I argued the case for remaining in the EU very strongly, as did many, many other people in 2016. 17 million people in this country took a different view. I think there would be a crisis in our democracy if we said, sorry, uh, you know, no can do. Like the Treasury Select Committee, which I chair, is going to be looking at the government's analysis of the deal and the Bank of England's analysis this week. We're holding evidence sessions, uh, which I'm sure Bloomberg viewers will find uh, a great uh, interest. No deal is ever going to be as good as the one we've got, but people voted for change. Uh, and I think the deal the Prime Minister put on the table respects that, but also doesn't crash our economy. Well, I'm going to rip up the script, Nikki Morgan. I mean, people voted for change. What's the change right now other than the presumption that Parliament uh, isn't going to go for this? Well, look, you're right. I mean, the, the point is that uh, we've had two years, basically, of sort of UK politics stalling whilst this Brexit deal has been negotiated. Yeah. Um, and we will carry on having two years of st more of stalling if we don't get this withdrawal agreement agreed and embark on the transition period. Now, not much is going to change in this transition period, uh, but I think people will begin to see that uh, there are possibilities. So, obviously, I do a lot of work and looking at financial services. And I think it would be fair to say that in the city of London and elsewhere, there's an appetite for thinking about well, you know, we've, right. we've obviously stuck very close, we've been very influential in financial service regulation. If we're not going to be part of that, then what would we do differently? Where might we face? What international standards would we look at following, for example? It's going to take quite a long time right. for that to unfold. This is not going to happen anytime soon. But those are the kinds of discussions that I can see people beginning just to think about in my discussions with financial institutions. You know, Nikki Morgan, I know you were transfixed by Chelsea on Saturday, but by Sunday you were back to figuring out who's going to replace Prime Minister May. Is there a discussion, I mean, in this one-week interregnum before we actually get to the Parliament vote, is there a full-blown discussion about who will replace the Prime Minister? Or am I being rude in asking that question? 
<laughs> you're not rude to me ask the question um, because unfortunately a number of my colleagues uh, put that question on the table earlier on this month when they said they were going to gather letters to unseat the Prime Minister. As we know, that attempt failed. I think it would be the height of madness to change uh, Prime Minister now, although I take Rupert's point obviously about if a Prime Minister loses a major vote, what do they do? Um, look, of course there is, there is discussion, nothing formal, and the honest truth is there is no obvious replacement because whoever takes over the job inherits exactly the same parliamentary arithmetic. So actually they're not going to have any better of a landscape in which to uh, negotiate this. And so actually I think for all the reasons that we've heard, the Prime Minister has shown remarkable resilience and stoicism. I've had my run-ins with her, but on this I have to say I think she absolutely uh, is acting in the country's best interest and that's why she wants to go and talk to the country about the deal now. Rupert, how should investors and markets actually look at this? So does it all play in pound and what exactly is priced in right now? Is it an, a no deal first time but actually there's a second vote and it gets through? Yeah, so there's been a lot of commentary around the idea that market reaction to a deal failing yeah. might change opinions. The problem is that's now, I think, pretty much priced in. I think right. most people in markets are expecting the deal that to was fail tarp, first time. The, the tarp yeah, I've, I've actually been sort of identified as the originator of this tarp <laughs> idea. But anyway, it was actually a prediction rather than a recommendation. And one of the key things about this is the more it gets talked about, the more it gets priced in advance. So I suspect that particularly if the vote is quite close. I don't think markets would respond very negatively to a vote failing at this point. And I think that a lot of that is because all of these plan Bs are actually more market-friendly than uh, the, vote, the vote passing, particularly an EEA option. So you're going to end up with markets having a, a problem of pricing. Still this, I think, personally, very small tail risk of an actual disruptive no-deal exit and the possibility of something that's actually more market-friendly along the EEA lines. I think that the, the reason we haven't seen more volatility is because people are looking through the first vote to those other options already. Um, Nicky Morgan, as head of the Treasury Select Committee, so of course all Bloomberg viewers know you because you interrogate some of the, the movers and shakers. Are you confident that they're prepared for, it, for anything happening with Brexit? Well, that's some of the questions we've been asking. The honest truth is, I think if there were to be a no-deal Brexit, preparations are not uh, all in place. Um, we had the head of HMRC, Revenue and Customs, before us last week, and we asked him about the systems that would be necessary in the event of a uh, no-deal, or even if we were to rely on that, the uh, Northern Ireland backstop. And the honest truth is, those plans, are they can't put them in place because they don't yet know what the parameters are to design the necessary <coughs> software and systems. And that's a major part. So what he was basically saying was they have to balance eventually in this scenario, raising money, security, and uh, obviously um, the sort of the border checks and everything else. And, you know, it's going to be a question of uh, nothing. It will be, I think he described it as suboptimal what would happen if we were to yeah. leave with no deal without the necessary systems in place. Ms. Hopkins, suboptimal brings up Heathrow. Let me cut to the chase. How are, how are customs going to change at Heathrow? I mean, you come in now and there's EU and they get through in two seconds and everybody else like ugly Americans, it takes three hours to get through customs. I get that. But, but <laughs> how do you perceive Heathrow will be after this agreement? Well, look, it's a, really, it's a really good question. I think there are plans being made in the Home Office to, and of course, you're talking now about people and borders. Um, and, uh, you know, I was passing through the border just last week myself and looked up and thought, well, I wonder what the signs are going to look like exactly. uh, from either March next year or from 2021. At the moment, of course, if you are part of uh, Switzerland or part of the EEA, you still get to go through the, uh, the quicker queue, shall we say. Um, now, you know, is that something that can be uh, negotiated? And, and all those sorts of questions. Uh, Heathrow is also a huge uh, freight port, although we don't often think about it that way, but of course they bring in freight from around the world. 
But one of the things that's going to have to change, I think almost regardless of what happens eventually, is we've got about 140,000 small companies in this country who before now have only exported to the EU. So they're not filling in forms and having to do all the paperwork if you, you do if you export to the rest of the world. That's going to change. And training and getting people used to those sorts of forms, that all takes time. Of course it can be done. But it takes time, and while people are getting used to the new system, what they won't be doing is they won't be exporting, and that's when you start seeing the damage unfolding to our economy. That's why a no-deal Brexit is so potentially damaging. Nicky Morgan, we're November 26. What are the chances of the UK actually inadvertently or advertently leaving the, U- the EU in a, in a messy way? Crashing Look, I, out? I, I think that's... that's- quite high actually and my it was an event on friday and i put it at 50 50 um, oh. you know a no deal brexit because actually if this agreement doesn't get approved by parliament um and parliament is able to come up with uh, an alternative and um, it is possible that the government might say okay well that's it you know we are going to go for a, a, a no deal and we're just going to spend the next three months frantically preparing uh, for that we find ourselves sliding out and my worry is that my colleagues who for very legitimate reasons are pushing a second vote or wanting uh, something else to, to happen may find we run out of road on all those options and we end up sliding out. All right, thank you both. Nikki Morgan, there, the chair of the Treasury Select Committee, joining us today and Rupert Harrison of BlackRock. What a week we've got coming up for you. Speeches from Fed Vice Chairman Clarida on Tuesday, Chairman Powell on Wednesday, and a much-anticipated G20 meeting to round out the week. One central question going into 2019, do we face a soft landing or are we well on the road to a recessionary slowdown? Joining me to answer that question, the man who posed that question, James Sweeney, Credit Suisse Chief Economist and Head of Global Fixed Income and Economic Research joins us now. Good morning, James. Good morning. So walk me through this, because I think this is a massive debate right now, whether we're returning to trend growth in the United States and in Europe as well, for that matter, or whether something more sinister is taking place in the global economy. Yeah, um, the way I would define a soft landing, which often doesn't feel so soft from an equity market perspective, is is when you see weak manufacturing growth, small falling PMIs, stress in markets, but the labor market and inflation are basically fine and, and on trend. And so in GDP terms, that might mean you're a little bit below you know, 2% for a while, um, but really it's a manufacturing story and that's really what we're expecting. So we're expecting manufacturing weakness. I really don't see a very likely scenario where the US unemployment rate shoots up sharply and that's what a recession is. This line in your research just jumped out at me. Market perceptions of global growth have been heavily influenced by the performance of the automobile sector. What is happening in autos that is temporary? Yeah, so I mean, you know, market per- perceptions of growth are, are really driven by PMIs. PMIs are driven by manufacturing growth and industrial production. And in the last six or nine months, manufacturing growth has been driven, pardon the pun, by the, by the auto sector. In fact, we estimate that uh, global industrial production X autos has actually been flat at trend-like pretty good growth uh, since, since the beginning of the year. So what's happening in autos is you've had tax increases in China leading to very slow auto sales. You've had storms and a typhoon in, in, in Japan, which led to a significant disruption um, in, in production and, and, and exports. Um, in, in the U.S., uh, you haven't had such a disruption except that uh, Tesla sales, Model 3 sales, are the number one car recently, which may be impacting uh, some exports. And in Europe, you've had this regulatory change 
where a Volkswagen apparently you know, missed a deadline to re- retool some of their production for diesel, and it caused production to, to really plummet for, for a little while. Um, and that was September, October, and we think now it's coming back. And when you really look at all this in the soup, what does it mean for car sales? What does it mean for industrial production of cars globally? It's been a significant shock. And when you do the numbers carefully worldwide, again, X autos, there has been no slowdown in manufacturing. So listening to what you're saying, James, essentially is that the slowdown worldwide has been technically driven. There are no real fundamental underpinnings to this. And if we are transitioning back towards trend growth, in between, I imagine we're going to have a lot of volatility in the market where price, as you point out, really sets narrative. And the narrative at the moment is very, very worried about a real deceleration through 2019, underpinned by a real slowdown in the United States and a Federal Reserve that seemingly hasn't woken up to that yet. So walk me through how you think this is going to play out. Yeah. So again, I separate manufacturing from the broad economy and the labor market. And and in, in manufacturing in the short run, uh, the German factories are turning back on. So you're going to have a rebound there. In China, this is complicated, but you're getting farther away from when the taxes went up in January, but there's expectations that the taxes could go down again. Very strange for a company to be lowering and then raising or you know reversing taxes on one product within a year. But basically, we, we think as, as Japanese production comes back, German production comes back, in the next three months or so, we're going to see better auto production again. Uh, when we get through that, we're going to have the impact of the trade war, We're going to have the impact of tightening financial conditions. We're going to have the impact of lower oil prices on mining and energy capex. All of those things together are likely to put downward pressure on manufacturing growth next year. None of them are likely to be sufficient to drive the U.S. unemployment rate up. That's a soft landing. That's what we're expecting for next year. So it is a rocky time. It's just not a disaster. Give us a statistic on your your 2% call on GDP, 2.1%. 2.4%. How does Chairman Powell's tone change moving from make America great again to 2.4%? Well, 2.4% is not bad. And, and I agree. Consistent Agreed. with a couple hikes next year. And, and I think what you're seeing in initial claims and payrolls and wage growth and all those sorts of things, consumption and retail sales, is consistent with the need to continue hiking. But the market, as always, is going to look at a PMI is going to look at a, a manufacturing company's you know, earnings being revised down. Yeah, but why doesn't say, oh, no, he Wednesday? We're, we're I mean, I mean you and I are going to be Economic Club of New York on, on Wednesday. We're going to be sitting there moving the vegetables around the, on the plate. Why didn't he just say, you know, we're looking at what's out there. We think we're going to raise once or twice, and then we're really going to study things come July or whatever that, that date point is. I think Why gonna, can't he say that? I think he is going to say that. Maybe not as clear as you just did, but I, I think he's going he's gonna to hint at that. I mean, the, 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 central, of, the central kind of estimate of, of that neutral rate that they talk about is around 3%, which basically yeah. is a hike in, in December, and it's maybe two more next year. And that's our forecast. And I, I think reassessing when you get there makes sense but you know along the way it will likely slow manufacturing growth and and continue to weigh on financial markets i think what would really help them right now is if they did not have the summary of economic projections and we did not know what the median dot was if we didn't know where the median dot was tom i think we'd all conclude that that's essentially is where they're going we've heard that from chairman powell we've heard that from vice chair clarida Things are dark. You've got to walk a little bit more carefully so you don't stub your toe. That's effectively what they've told us. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think also in terms of markets, you know, we're getting right now the opposite of what we had in 2016. We're getting an ex- a slowdown in, in global growth. It's modest, but we're getting a slowdown with tightening policy. That's bad for everything. So stocks, bonds, financial assets are not giving good returns. In 2016 and 17, 
you had an acceleration in global growth, you had an easing of policy, which was an overreaction to the deflation fears we talked about many times, and that was good for all financial assets. So, you know, we're struggling because returns are not great and because growth is incrementally slowing. But again, watch the labor market. The unemployment rate is going nowhere. The unemployment rate is going nowhere. It's an Eisenhower unemployment rate, right? Are yeah. we a fully employed America? We are. We are. And, and you know, hopefully that's going to shift wage growth around a little bit. You know, in, we are seeing lately that wage growth at the bottom end of the distribution is actually yeah. a little bit higher than, than the rest, which is a big change. So, you know, we'd like to see that continue for a long time. James Sweeney, thank you so much with Credit Suisse. Right now, Oliver Chen to help us with Cyber Monday as well. It's, uh, Oliver, over the last 90 days, my basic take is Tiffany's model is worked. Is it the new model for luxury retail? It is, Tom. I mean, something blue, something new. What's happening here is innovation in product, innovation in stores. And as you know, uh, the Blue Box Cafe and, and reinventing retail being experiential. So they really need to get reasons for people to come in the store. Um, and they also need to engage digitally. Uh, we've seen this at Tiffany, and we're excited about what's happening there as they really work to improve stores, marketing, product, and really become yeah. irreverent and fun, uh, yet true to the heritage of the brand as well. It's a brand that's famous for gifting. It's a brand that's famous for bridal. Uh, and we like the innovation that we're seeing at Tiffany & Company. I'll try not to allow my own experience to set a broad narrative for the whole of the country, but I will talk to you about my own experience over the weekend, Oliver. I went to a, a mall in Massachusetts in a Boston suburb. There was no one there. Neiman Marcus was empty. Tiffany's was around the corner. And there was no one there either. Where are these stores that are doing well? Yeah, I mean, for Black Friday, it's it's really a family event, and the broadline retailers such as Target and Walmart uh, have the most traffic. We also liked Kohl's and Ulta, and then we liked um, what we saw with traffic, although they're having um, some issues at Victoria's Secret and Pink. So as you think about Black Friday and the family tradition, it, it's a teen sport, it's a family sport, yeah. um, and then we'll see uh, really this rush of men trying to get great gifts uh, as it gets closer Did you hear to, to the holiday. A rush of men trying to get It will be um, a stressful experience in terms of just, you know, trying to get your job done with, with choosing a great gift. But the Tiffany Blue Box is just an invitation to a great gift, um, as, as you know, in terms of that brand equity. But I, I was at Natick, and I, I know uh, the, that bifurcation does happen, um, and there are not yeah. luxury shoppers at 4 a.m., you know, so, looking at I mean, I know VetBill's not listening, but the dog bowl in Bone China for $175? That's nice. Like, that's well, like getting there is, done there is a over. dog bowl at Tiffany's? Yeah, it's, in Tiffany Blue, of course. Oh, lovely. Getting it done. But what you describe, Oliver Chen, and, and I, again, one of the great research reports of the year from Cowan on experiential retail, like 200 pages or, or so, almost McKinsey-like, Oliver, to say the least. What did you learn from that, and what do you observe in this holiday season about how basic retail, luxury retail, and the great in-between is doing? Yeah, what's happening is this transformation and revolution where we need Instagrammable moments. When we think about Generation Z, it's about culture, it's about curation, and it's about convenience. How do you really minimize the task of shopping and maximize the pleasure? Um, and that has to do with really adding food and beverage, health and wellness into the stores and rethinking the whole store experience. Okay, the but what's store... that for? That's for 14-year-olds, right? Or 18-year-olds? <laughs> John Farrell and I, mean, I are shopping that way? 
Tom and I need an Instagrammable I mean, moment. You want your your good ready to be picked up. You want to do the curbside pickup. You're you right. don't want to wait in line, and you want um, to you'll search online and and on your mobile phone, and you'll choose some necklaces or the dog bowl or the leash or you know I like the Tiffany coffee cups, and oh, then you, you want it ready to go. Um, it's it's a great pleasure just to look at that blue in the morning, and life is about you know innovation it's, and can I quote him on that? I got to put that in. Yeah, you should, <laughs> put, you should put that in a quote. Do you know what else I want, Oliver? I, I want the ease of returns. Who is doing yeah. this well? Some companies make it really difficult for me to return an item, and do you know what I do next time around? I want to buy something. I don't shop there. Who's doing this right? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the reality of what you're bringing up is very, very uh, important. And Amazon has really uh, reset expectations around ease of returns. And they're doing a, a partnership with Kohl's where you can bring package less returns, just the item. But as we look across the sector, um, we've seen yeah. a much better execution with, with free shipping, free returns. And this is an important factor for you to con- um for for retailers to to have uh, done really well, um, and I I um I use returns a lot yeah. as well in terms of thinking about well, fashion products. Over <laughs> over the last three years or four years in this huge revolution, and the growth numbers, folks, are stunning. Whether you see them from Cowan or from his good competitors, but Oliver Chen, are we learning better to diminish returns? Are like returns less? To, excuse me, to internet are returns less now? We've seen stable rates of return. So fashion and apparel retail um, has fairly high levels of returns, yeah. like 30 to 50%. But what happens is these business models, you know, really incorporate returns into their algorithms. So it's been predictable um, and predictable. And a lot of the return rates are similar on a year-over-year basis. The future of retail is using augmented reality and other fit techniques and understanding your wardrobe to minimize returns. So. Understood. Understanding a wardrobe is the square footage of a closet <laughs> to be filled. Do you know who's got this now, though, Oliver? Mr. Porter in New York yeah. City. You can order Very something, elegant. get it within a couple of hours, and if you don't like it, they'll pick it up for you. You never have to go out. Yeah, I mean, I think that happens, and then bricks and clicks. You know, Tom, as you know, I'm a big fan of stores and people and labor and people talking well, to you. But to, to, to Mr. Farrow's comment, do people still want to go out? They do, but they, it needs to be better. It needs to be fun. It needs to be exciting. Yeah. We need to see interesting people and also labor and talent um, that can be immersive. So if you rethink immersive. Gucci and Gucci-fication of, of retail, um, it's really like a theater. Tom's and experienced a, the Gucci-fication of retail, too. He was early. <laughs> I was early. Oliver, like an early adopter. Before we lose you, just quickly, Thanksgiving came really early this year. What does the extra week give to retail? I'll does it move the you. dial that much? Yeah, we, we do have an extra week. We also have an extra day of shopping. So oh, really? Retail will be spread out, but I estimate um, a low single-digit boost in terms of the extra yeah. week. It's it's um, somewhat in the numbers and expectations. Retail's had a tougher time. 
stocks could be range bound until January, but we love Walmart, we love Kohl's, we like those value plays. Yeah. But at the high end, we like Tiffany um, and other and Amazon. Can you buy the European conglomerates? I'm looking at Gucci. Her earnings with Shell Pendants. It looks like something off a kiosk in Provincetown. Uh, $890 earnings with Shell Pendants at Gucci. And how about? Come on, Oliver. The Flash Trek sneaker with removable crystals. This screams $1,590. Gucci sneakers. Well, customizable. Do it yourself, especially with jewels. That fits well. And again, I think they would complement your bro tie and your intellect because they're <laughs> can very you, elite. Can you we, buy the foreign conglomerates, you know, the ones wait, over wait, in wait. France? I just, like see, I just want to see some Gucci sneakers to compliment your bow tie. I need to well, see that. Oh, Colin um, of the Twins can is we, piling can we, here, can we crowdfund this on Bloomberg Radio? If you promise. <laughs> Tom's has to be jewel encrusted and I'll take something simple yet elegant. The first line. Uh, Oliver Chen, thank God you're only on <laughs> once a year. Go away. With Cowan and Company, Oliver Chen, and, for, and folks, it is hugely entertaining and money-making research how not to get your shirt taken. And, I mean, it's uh, truly brilliant uh, research. Uh, I mean, we've it's, joked it's a lot depth. about yeah. um, the last five minutes, but yeah, it's truly impressive research. I, I, I read it, or skimmed it, I should say, to be honest, 200 pages, and I walked in Tiffany's and it was like Oliver Chen 101. Yeah. I mean, it was hilarious how the company's changed. Our next guest, John Farrow, is exceptionally qualified in the dynamics of a tangible asset, and that would be oil. We forget, we quote West Texas, we quote Brent, we, the financial, 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 financial. There's also the chemistry of it as well with a doctorate from uh, Cambridge in chemical If I could use a technical word, ugly, it has been ugly over the last couple of months for the oil bills. Are there any left out there? Abhishek Despande joining us now, head of JP Morgan's global oil market research and strategy team. Just go through the technical backdrop where we are at the moment, Abhishek. How long short is this market right now? So if you look at the markets from the uh, net length perspective, we have definitely seen uh, a significant reduction of the total net length from earlier April by almost 700,000 contracts uh, when we had some of the recent uh, highs of the year for both Brent and TI combined. And in just the second half, we've seen over 550,000 barrels of uh, 50,000 contracts being, being reduced. So we had a net, net long to short ratio of almost closer to 17 uh, during its uh, recent highs, literally earlier in, in, in the second half of the year. Uh, and now we are down closer to just three and, and closer to basically re- uh, realizing that the, the length in the market are being removed as investors are turning out to be less confident on remaining supportive of prices going forward. And at the same time, are also increasing their short positions. And it really fits the narrative. We've gone from a market worried about a supply shortage to a market worried about a supply glut. I look at the record output coming from Saudi Arabia at the moment. I just wonder how difficult it will be to pull it back in, to introduce price cuts, to introduce output cuts, rather, when the President of the United States is putting so much pressure on the Mabashek. Absolutely. I think it's kind of a deja vu 2014 and 2016, same same time around uh, that time as well, just in the run-up to the OPEC meeting. Uh, part of this issue, to be very frank, is uh, self-created, uh, policy-led, I agree, and policy-led this time by United States, actually, uh, in terms of U.S. policies bearing heavy on OPEC-led policies going forward. Uh, but 
at the end of the day, the surplus or rather the supply overtaking demand uh, in the third quarter was pretty much strongly driven by the OPEC countries, uh, namely uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, even Libya's uh, less re- reduced re- uh, <coughs> disruptions helped. And, and to, on top of that, the other OPEC plus countries, which is Russia, added to the additional yeah. oil in the market. If you take your very careful analysis at J.P. Morgan and then bring it over to what to do with equity investment or what not to do with equity investment in oil. What is it right now? Do I want to buy shares and where, or do I want to run? So, so Tom, I'm not an equity analyst. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but if you were to look at oil uh, per se, I guess for the time being, uh, from the price perspective, we remain supportive because we believe that OPEC in 2016 took a decision that uh, it is in their responsibility to help balance the market because it was very difficult for them to basically uh, compete with the U.S. low supply, low cost supply. And I believe something similar is, uh, is what they're li- trying is likely to look into. So the current fall in prices is very much, as I said, OPEC-led, and OPEC need to intervene at this point. However, Given the fact that uh, we are seeing a lot of uh, interference or, 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 or navigating these oil markets in current political scenarios become much more difficult because of U.S. policies, uh, there is a good chance if OPEC does nothing, we will go towards our own J.P. Morgan lower price scenario, uh, gravitate towards that, as, as oil will have limited reason to remain supportive if OPEC does nothing. Abhishek Despande. Great to catch up That's with great. you. Head of JP Morgan's Global All Market Research and Strategy Team. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>